Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Thank you to Dr. Tilly and team for inviting me back to lecture. It's been probably several years now that I have um, been back to lecture. I think 2019 was the last time. So a little bit about me. So I'm Dr. Nadia Pearson. I am currently the command surgeon at the AMED Medical Center of Excellence. And I will be taking over as the chief of the Department of Operational Medicine come May. So I have a fellowship training in pediatric emergency medicine, and also I am board eligible for EMS. So wealth of experience, I like to lecture on lots of topics that are relevant, lots of things that I get questions on personally, phone calls, uh, et cetera. There's so much information out there, and I feel like, in general, the emergency medicine physician does a really great job of resuscitating and knowing lots about pediatric things. It's just the very small chunk of pediatrics, like the congenital lesions, the things that you don't see very often, the parents dealing with those kind of interactions that really trip us up sometimes. Okay, so just a couple of things in this intro slide here. So um, the calls that I've been getting recently are through the referral center, and it's more from people, from folks that are downrange in certain areas. Who's deployed here and has not seen a kid downrange. Okay, look around. There's not anybody that has raised their hand. All right, so I just want to point that out because when we, when I first got into the military, I really didn't think about pediatrics when I was going to be deployed, uh, preparing for deployments. And I think the majority of patients that I saw, specifically on my first deployment, this was back in Iraq, was pediatric cases and. For sure, I was not ready for it. We had no pediatric trauma uh, cases, no equipment that was small enough. We didn't have protocols. Obviously, um, you know, we had some emergency physicians that were there, but the experiences from that um, I've kind of taken to heart and to take taken with me. So lately, who have we had to deal with as far as pediatrics? It's been the refugees. So. Um, the Afghan mission, kids down at the border, and we're getting more and more phone calls about those kinds of things. And who are these kids? These kids are the ones that don't have really good medical care like you would expect being in the United States in an emergency department. So lack of vaccines, lack of access to care, um, lots of precipitous deliveries that we've gotten phone calls on. Um, precipitous, precipitous deliveries, not only just they didn't know they were pregnant or they knew they were pregnant and had no idea what gestational age they were. So very difficult to deal with, especially when we're talking to them over the phone. Okay, so what are we going to talk about specifically? So this slide in particular is giving me a lot of angst because most of all of us are all ADD type personalities, right? So we like to have things that are very much chunked. And you notice that there's 11 things on here and not 10. Um, so my kids are actually here with me um, today and they can vouch for this. Like for example, at the gas station, uh, you have to stop pumping your gas at a zero or a five. So that's just kind of my rule. So 11, I chose things that were that I felt that were very important um, so we're going to go through these pretty quickly, okay? 
All right. This is probably, if I could tell you anything in this lecture, these updates were done in 2021, so probably the most important to you. So you probably want to get your cameras out. If you haven't seen the CPGs, the clinical guidelines for pediatric fevers that were just um, published in August of last year. So you'll notice it says 8 to 60 days old. Why does it say 8 to 60 days old? Well, in that first week, majority of them are in the hospital, and if you get somebody with a fever, a little infant with a fever, you're going to do the full workup anyway. There's no real, oh, the baby's feeding well, the baby's, you know, doing all the normal things, cooing, doing, you know, what it's supposed to do. So first seven days, that's an automatic. Eight days, this is where you get the parents coming in to say, well, they're eating well, they're feeding, they're peeing, they're pooping, they're doing all the things that they're supposed to do, but... They felt really warm, and they had a fever, or they had a subjective fever. All right. So over the data for the last 40 years, we've had so many different guidelines and so many different criteria that, that we have to do. There's no issue, again, with a kid that doesn't look well. You're going to do everything along with that. The issues or the controversies come when a kid looks well. These three guidelines that I'm going to give you are for kids that have a temperature greater than 100.3. So 100.4 or greater. That's 38.0. 38.5, if you're 101.3 or higher, that's considered a high-risk criteria, and I'm going to point that out into the guidelines for you. So back in the 1970s, we really didn't have a good plan for screening group B strep. And a lot of uh, hospital admissions increased costs, and we were keeping kids in the hospital for a week, sometimes two weeks at a time, waiting on cultures, waiting on different results. And we did a full sepsis workup back then for any kid who had any sort of elevation in temperature under 90 days old, so that's three months old. So 80s to 90s, this was a new effort that decreased the amount of hospitalizations, and we looked at different parameters in the research. So white blood cell count, absolute neutrophil count, bands, urinalysis, all those kinds of things, and then the CSF, of course, LP. The question is always, do I need to LP or not LP? So all of those things, really great, 80 to 95% sensitivity. In addition, we had new criteria to look at. So this is when your Rochester criteria were developed. And the shift was towards not admitting all of those kids up to 90 days of age. It was more so the 30 and under. Okay, so 30 and under. And this is where it gets tricky, where it changes with the new guideline and the new criteria. The ones that were 30 to 90 days, they were starting to uh, do some more outpatient treatment with them. So they'll send the cultures. These are the parents that say, oh, my kid is feeding well, but I didn't know what to do about the fever. I don't know if I should bring him to the doctor. And the doctors always say, go to the emergency department. Those are the ones, in generally, in the past that we could send home with some rosafen and outpatient cultures. Unfortunately, there's a lot of practice differentials out in the community, and most people really weren't following the criteria. So we went on, and there was a, this was part of the review article from 20, August of 2021, and the AAP, there was five criteria really that they were looking at, and what really influenced all of these changes. So number one, changing bacteriology. Lots of different bugs that are now in the system. And also, we have a really good group B strep screening criteria. So most of the time, in well-developed countries, when you have a female that brings a child in, or a male that brings a child in that has a fever, they have a really good maternal history of being screened for group B strep. Okay, So less, less cases of group B strep that we're seeing as a result of that. Also, strep pneumo vaccinations. So that's... Um, going up, and then increased safety of food, screening, um, and very, very rare will we see a case of listeria. So that's one of those board buzz questions, but we really don't see it anymore in this age group. The other thing, cost of care has accelerated tremendously, and there's been lots of delays in care because of all these cool whiz-bang things that we can do, and there's been issues with kids not getting the right antibiotics, not getting the right care, not getting fluids on board sooner, um, you know, using either ultrasound or the translucent 
probes to try and put lines in. All this delays the actual care sometimes of infants. Also, uh, practice variability and all the things that we can do, there's mistreatments that happen. Number three is advanced testing. So we have all sorts of panels that we can order. We have GI panels, we have encephalitis panels, PCR, you name it, um, we can do it. The thing that we don't do as often right now is our inflammatory markers. And this is really, really keystone for the new guidelines for 2021. So procalcitonin is made by um, the thyroid, and it increases significantly with bacterial infections. So in kids specifically, procalcitonin is one of those things, inflammatory markers, that you absolutely, if you have it available at your hospital, you do want to order a procalcitonin. The other thing is CRP. It's made by the liver, and it's also highly selective and will increase at a higher rate and to a higher level with um, serious bacterial infections. So good to know about those things. Improved hospital care, rapid discharges, and integration of the parents into caring for the infants and kids in the hospitals. That has been a significant improvement in trying to get the kids home sooner. And then, of course, rapidly evolving research. So we have a lot of data over these last 40 years. So collaborative, multi-center trials, we're talking hundreds of thousands of data points that lead to these clinical practice guideline changes. All right, so here they are. This is um, for the 8 to 21 days old. And you'll notice um, in, I don't have a pointer, but right in the middle, it says increased HSV risk. So increased HSV risk, what is that going to be? That's going to be pretty much anything. If there's other kids around and they have cold sores, runny nose, congestion, in addition to a maternal history of HSV or vaginal delivery. Um, so these are the ones, especially if they have a fever in the first three weeks of life, I usually just add on the acyclovir empirically since we do have PCR testing for HSV. So add it on. Um, there's really no harm in adding it on, uh, especially if it's just a one-time dose and then you'll get your PCR back uh, for that. So this is the guideline. And interestingly, um, it has nothing. Um, everybody in this guideline is going to get um, the LP. And is, well, we'll get a urine, a blood culture, and then you perform the inflammatory markers plus or minus. The inflammatory markers are going to be very, very important for the, uh, the three weeks out, from 21 to 28 days or around 29 days to do those inflammatory markers. So you can do the inflammatory markers when you do this workup, but it won't necessarily change the course of what you do. 22 to 28 days is the next chunk category. And this is a big change because before we had 0 to 30 days, 30 to 60 days, and 60 to 90 days. So there's one little weak window in here that um, we're doing things a little bit differently, and this adds the inflammatory markers, okay? And um, there's a lot of studies that are showing invasive serious bacterial illness greater than 25 days is decreased down to about 0.4%. So we're really trying to get these kids out of the hospital or at least not admitted and not necessarily have the full workup with this. So big takeaways with this. If their inflammatory markers are low, that's your procalcitonins if you have it, the CRPs, you don't need to LP these kiddos if they have a significant fever. In addition, if you look at the guidelines uh, specifically, uh, inflammatory markers puts fever greater than 101.3 at a significant uh, level risk. So if you have a fever that's 100.3, 100.5, that's not necessarily a significant fever according to this guideline with thousands of patients enrolled with multi-center stuff, a multi-center trial. Procalcitonin, CRP, and I put the, uh, the information up in the upper left-hand corner for those uh, triggers. You'll find it all in the figure, and it's right out of the clinical practice guidelines paper. So it's important to know this one. So if you see, if you're at the top, fever to 100.3 or less, and they look well, so this is a kid that you know, is feeding, uh, is not vomiting, peeing, pooping. Um, you can do blood cultures, uh, urine cultures, and not have to LP them 
if, that, um, if their inflammatory markers are low. If their inflammatory markers are a little bit elevated, however, you go down the LP route, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to keep them in the hospital, but you can send them home um, with some medication. Uh, the two-week risk of invasive bacterial illness, so if they're two weeks old, is at about 5.3. About when it goes to three weeks, it gets down to 3.3, and then this is where it comes to 1.6% uh, um, of serious bacterial illness. So this is why we can send kids that are 20-something 20, 20 days old with a fever home for uh, care. 29 to 60 days. So this is this next uh, chunk of time. So again, these guys do not need an LP if their markers are low. Okay? Um, if they're, they have low and they have a positive urine, you can still send them home with some antibiotics. All right? These are the ones you're probably going to want to do some uh, rocephin or some follow-on. Just make sure you have all of your cultures pending with this. So again, the same inflammatory markers, the same cutoff associated with this. So with these new guidelines, um, bottom line, you can send kids home that are actually pretty young, as long as you have the right uh, information and they're well appearing and you document it very, very well in your record. Unfortunately, I've been on several cases where um, the emergency physician did not document all of the uh, criteria for being well appearing. So, you know, when we got to court, we did the whole, you know, we ran through everything. And of course, the parent was like, no, my kid wouldn't eat, would refuse to suckle, wouldn't take any feeds or anything. And of course, if you paint a picture of an infant that's not doing all the infant things, that equals, you know, something that's bad. And unfortunately, you can send somebody home and then they develop something, you know, within the next 12 hours. It doesn't necessarily mean that the emergency physician did something, especially, you know, in reviewing those cases, these labs weren't concerning at all. So just be careful with your documentation, especially when you have the 29 days old uh, or less kids. And then make sure they also have close follow-up. So this day and age, especially um, for those folks who are using Genesis now, it's really easy to go from FirstNet in Genesis. And if you haven't, you'll get the pleasure of doing this uh, turnover soon. But you'll get to uh, send messages to the primary care team very easily. It's like a cut and paste kind of thing. Just open your message center and send, hey, I need a close follow-up for this kid tomorrow. All right. Next topic of feverish concerns that we get a lot of questions on is omphalitis versus granulomas and what they are. Both occur around the time when the umbilical cord is healing or it's drying up. Both will look bright red. Um, both will look bright red, but the granuloma would, will look more like a cherry red, and I have some pictures coming up with that. There should never... There should never, with a granuloma, if you're going to silver nitrate it, be any streaking, redness around. It's just the granuloma tissue itself that should be red. Any redness around the cord at all, dried up, should be very concerning to us as emergency physicians for omphalitis. And I would go ahead and treat for sepsis. And this is going back to the physiology of how uh, infants and where the portal um, where in the, near the liver and the portal uh, vein the circulation is coming from in the fetal circulation. So th this bacteria spreads very, very quickly. So this is going to be your infant within 6 to 12 hours that is going to crash if you don't get them some antibiotics on board. So be very careful with omphalitis. The one on the right-hand side is going to be your granuloma. See how bright red it is? That's one you can just take a silver nitrate stick and you can, you can burn it a little bit and it'll decrease the amount of bleeding and oozing that'll have. Granulomas tend to not get infected. It's just like an over-exacerbation of the tissue in that area from where the cord was. This one is really bad, the one on the left-hand side. That's a sepsis until proven otherwise. Okay, so this is my rundown, uh, the, the two-minute rundown of congenital heart disease. So, in general, emergency physicians don't have to know everything about congenital heart disease to adequately treat an infant with congenital heart or, or a consideration of congenital heart. So I'm going to dumb this down to like three, three or four slides here, okay? And this is how I think about it. 
If you have an infant that is around two-ish weeks old, and there's another spike in congenital heart around four, four to five weeks, and that's usually for your cyanotic lesions. You only have three different presentations that you need to worry about as an emergency physician. You have shock, and that looks like your typical shock, so you're going to get cardiovascular collapse associated with that. You're going to get the blueberry baby. That's the cyanotic baby, and they look blue. Or you're going to get a kid that looks that's in heart failure. Okay, so three different presentations. And what is heart failure? We all, this bread and butter emergency medicine for adults, what does it look like? It's a kid that's having difficulty breathing. The only thing in kids that's going to be different is you're not going to see your lower extremity edema like you would in an old person with heart failure because it usually comes on pretty rapidly. Okay, three presentations. When you read about congenital heart, murmurs are something that you read about a lot. I would caution you, always listen, but don't always say if they don't have a murmur, they don't have a congenital heart lesion. Because if that heart is not pumping effectively and it's not moving the blood through wherever it needs to go through, you're not going to hear a murmur, okay? The, the loud ones like the machine gun murmurs and all of those, the holocystolic murmurs, you're going to hear them and you're going to say, oh my gosh, I don't know what that is. But you're going to hear it everywhere on the chest and you can almost feel those. Those are not the ones I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the other murmurs that you listen and you're like, oh, I hear an extra, you can S3 or an S4. I can't even remember back in medical school if it's an S3 or an S4. It doesn't matter. Murmur is the more murmur. It's not going to guide your, your treatment and your, um, your diagnosis. Okay? So murmurs there, great. If it's not, I'm not going to rule out congenital heart. You always want to get a chest x-ray. What is the chest x-ray going to tell you? Big heart, little heart, heart on string, something's not right with the heart. That's what it's going to tell you. The other thing when you have a kid that has difficulty breathing or is blue, sometimes they do get other things like spontaneous pneumos and stuff. So you're going to look for all of the typical stuff uh, in an infant. Um, and then you're going to get signs, you're going to look for signs of pulmonary overcirculation. So this is going to be your volume overloaded kid, infant who is in heart failure. So it's going to look like a fluffy chest x-ray uh, all over. So chest x-ray is pretty important uh, with an infant. If you have a very big heart, big heart, heart failure, or another congenital lesion, be very careful with kids. You're going to have, you know, to deal with the 160s to 180 heart rate, but they get a lot of arrhythmias. One trick with the EKG with little kids is do a double time uh, EKG. So double time it out so it, it, de it increases the length in between. And then you can actually see if there's arrhythmias or weird waves in there and then you probably won't be able to interpret it. It's okay. The cardiologist will want a snapshot of it so they can look, take a peek at that. So very important to get that and you'll look like a, you'll look like a PEM pro if you get the EKG double timed. Pre and post ductal saturations. So the ductus arteriosus is fetal circulation because the placenta does all the circulation and then everything gets shunted through the ductus through the rest because you don't go to the lungs. Basic physiology. The ductus, um, so pre is going to be on the patient's right side. Post is going to be on the patient's left side. So make sure in your charts, and all my infant charts, I always document femoral pulses and pre and post ductal saturations. What does that mean? You just put the pulse ox on the right side, you put the pulse ox on the left side. So sometimes I use the feet, sometimes I use the arm and the leg. It just kind of depends where the nurses are working. you got to work around them. The other thing is four extremity blood pressures. Pediatric cardiologists will always want you to get four extremity blood pressures. The nurses freak out about this. Um, because it's very difficult sometimes putting on the little teeny, teeny, tiny cuff on a neonate. But you got to get them, and they're pretty accurate too. And usually you can feel, when you feel the femoral pulses, you can feel that they're weak, they're bounding, or they're not at all. The not at all ones will freak you out because you'll be like, I don't feel anything. But then you go up here or you go into the brachial and like, oh, it's... They have to have a really great blood pressure. Why can't I feel the femoral pulses? Well, congenital lesions will do that. Okay, so you had your three presentations, right? So that was the first side, three different presentations. Okay, 
So left side versus right side. Again, you don't need to know specifically all the lesions, but you need to know left ventricular outflow tract obstruction versus right, ventri right ventricular outflow obstruction, okay? In general, infant hearts do not like poor cardiac output, okay? They just, they just don't. They're like new muscle. They like good cardiac output. If you have a child who has a left-sided lesion, whatever it might be, co-art, critical aortic stenosis, interrupted arch, hypoplastic left, uh, left heart syndrome, they're going to present with acidosis and metabolic derangements, okay, if it is not diagnosed prenatally. Most of your big lesions are going to be diagnosed prenatally, but again, precipitous, refugee care, any of those, and also if they didn't, you know, get good care, uh, they might not know, okay? Do a blood gas and be very suspicious. Your differential for left-sided lesions is going to be your typical stuff that causes metabolic acidosis in infants. So what's that going to be? Sepsis. So we're all worried about sepsis. Don't forget the left heart, or the left heart um, in infants. So shock. What do you want to do to treat it? You're going to do the same thing as always, fluid boluses, trying to get that blood pressure up, antibiotics, consider sepsis, and if no response, you're going to go to um, doing your prostaglandins to open the ductus to try and get extra oxygenated blood over onto that left side, all right? So left ventricular side is not working, outflow tract obstruction, you need to push the blood onto that side. Okay, or open the, the ductus to get uh, additional flow. Right side, okay, that was left side. Right-sided lesions, these are going to be your blueberry babies. These are your cyanotic babies. These are the ones that are going to um, be not really tachypnic. They're going to look pretty well, but they're going to be blue. They're not going to be feeding very well, but they're just going to kind of be looking at you. They'll sleep. They wake up and kind of do their thing. But the parents know something is not right. And usually, if they're born in a tertiary center, you're not going to see these very much because they're, they have now instituted doing um, right and left-sided blood pressures or a, a pulse ox at least one time before they're discharged from the hospital. There's a lot of babies that are born at birthing centers that are not at hospitals that don't have all the access to a lot of the congenital things that you would expect. Um, so be very careful, um, and especially if, if they're born outside of a hospital situation or haven't been followed by a doc provider that's been looking at all these things, haven't had a, an ultrasound in their, you know, throughout their pregnancy, uh, be wary of that. So central diagnosis in a baby is always pathologic. There's always something going on if you have central cyanosis, so in the middle of the chest. Um, and basically what happens, most of these will have a right-to-left shunt. So somehow they have to get some oxygenated blood for something over to that left side. Okay, If it is, and it's like basically not going to the lungs. So to diagnose this, you want to do a hyperoxy test. To see, and all it is is you put the baby on 100% oxygen and you see what happens and you draw a gas after that. So pre and post, um, pre and post, um, pre and post oxygen. All right, it's pretty intuitive. If you give lots of oxygen and the lungs are working well, what would you expect your oxygen levels to do? You would expect them to go up. Right, so this is how you differentiate: Is it the lungs? The, are the lungs doing what they need to do to oxygenate the blood, or is the heart not doing what it needs to do to move the, the blood over? So about 150 is what you would expect um, your oxygen levels to go up if you put a baby on 100% uh, oxygen. Okay, it's pretty easy. Uh, so make sure you get your chest X-ray. All right. So now you guys are all experts, really, at those three presentations of infants with congenital heart. You know about left-sided failure. You know about right-sided failure. You want to do all the labs just like normal, CBC, EKG, um, and make sure you have supportive care. So fluids, 
and make sure you have the prostaglandins. Of course, that board question with prostaglandins, make sure you anticipate intubation, right? Because every time you give prostaglandins, uh, they just forget to breathe. This is what heart failure looks like in a kid. This is what you're going to see on the x-ray. So pretty similar, although it's obviously a pediatric film, but pretty similar to the adult in terms of what it will look like. Fluffy all over, not necessarily in a focal area, not on the, the right side, just kind of everywhere. Um, and this is um, probably a kid that's going to end up getting intubated. And arrhythmias on this one, too. The other thing... Um, that I, that I did not mention, as far as doing the heart exam, in kids, the liver is very telling. So even when you're giving boluses for sepsis, you want to make sure that you're feeling the liver edge. Sometimes even three boluses, when we do the 20 per kilo times three thing, you'll see the liver edge just coming down during, like after the second bolus, you're like, oh no, this kid is already fluid overloaded. That should clue you in that there's something else going on cardiac other than just plain sepsis. So anytime I'm resuscitating an infant, always have your hand on the liver. All right, hopefully there's no questions about cardiac stuff, but we're gonna keep moving because I got those 11 things. Um, another thing that we get lots of questions on, whether they have fevers or don't have fevers, is rashes. For me, it's either a good rash or it's a bad rash uh, in a kid. And usually you can tell the difference because kids are pretty tolerant of most things. Um, E-tox, uh, so these are common buzzwords in pediatrics, but we don't hear it very much in the emergency department. Acne is pretty common. How do you know what's acne? How do you know what's E-tox? Uh, seborrheic dermatitis, uh, we get calls for impetigo all the time, and I'm like, no, it's just seborrhea, just put them on some, you know, shampoos and stuff. And then the other thing, we saw a lot of this, and we got a lot of phone calls uh, for candidal, vaginal-type rashes. And a lot of the providers, um, pre, um, not necessarily emergency medicine providers, but they, they preempted what they were telling us, like, about sexual abuse. It's just, it automatically went to that. And this is, um, this is a pretty, pretty common thing in pediatrics to have candida and to also have bac bacteria uh, down there. These are not secondary infections. These are not sepsis, SJS, 10, any of those bad things. So you just need to tell parents that this is not anything to worry about. So the one on the top right is neonatal acne. And the etiology, etiology of it is a lot of the androgens from the mom. And it comes in waves um, based on what if the mom is breastfeeding. That's usually the kids that we're going to see this in most often. And sometimes, because you just it looks bad in pictures, sometimes you know we do go ahead and treat with um, what we normally treat acne with. It's like a benzoyl or something like that. I particularly don't like doing that because less is more with kids. They shouldn't be putting lotions. They shouldn't be putting anything on these rashes. This one is common on the right-hand side here, uh, your left. That is milia, so they look like little teeny tiny white dots. It's very hard not to go in. The parents want to squish them and do all sorts of things, tell them not to do it. This will go away on its own. Nothing to do about this. Etox. This is the one that the parents will come in and say, I think there's fleas in the, in the crib. They just look all kind of eaten up. Um, it usually happens one or two days after birth. Um, and again, nothing to do with this one. Interesting, you have to make sure when you're looking at these rashes, it spares the palms and soles of the feet. So you'll see this all over, but it should never be on the palms and the soles. Um, that's, that could be sepsis or something else. So this one, uh, etox, is also very common, but don't confuse it with uh, something else. Um, it is rarely ever seen in preemies. I don't exactly know why. Um, it has to do with the newborn uh, immune system and eosinophils uh, reacting to the new environment. Um, I believe the pathophys for preemies is that they're just their immune system is not as well developed as a, uh, a full-term baby. So I think that's why. This looks bad, but it is not. This is seborrhea. Um, it's on the hair in the scalp. This is your cradle cap. 
unfortunately, some parents will take those little cradle cap combs and they think they can just scrape this whole thing out. And I've seen some scalps that are uh, bleeding, so you can get a secondary infection if they're doing all that stuff. So you want to tell them don't, don't do all that. Um, just some ketoconnels, all of that. This, it looks very impetigenous, but it's not. It's just seborrhea and eczema. Um, the one on the bottom, on the right, um, that is eczema. That has herpes in it, okay? All eczema doesn't have herpes in it. I don't want you to take that away. But um, very commonly, because kids put their fingers in their mouth and, you know, they, they touch stuff, itch stuff. Eczema is very itchy. Um, don't miss eczema herpeticum. Okay, if you have any concern at all, send a PCR, do something, send a culture, put them on it preemptively. Usually with eczema herpeticum, if it's not scratched to death by the kid, we'll have some sort of vesicles or something in the rash that you'll be able to see with that. Okay, moving on. Uh, this is your candidal rash. This almost looked exactly like a couple of the pictures that I got texted from downrange, like, hey, what is this? What do I do? I'm concerned. There's vesicles, and I'm like, yeah, that's just diaperderm. It's candidal. It's very painful for the kid. They don't want to pee. They can get UTIs from it. Um, I haven't had really good luck with all the the desitins and zinc-based stuff. So usually just some petroleum-based protectant from the urine so the urine doesn't irritate it. And then steroids, 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 and antifungals. Some, some chlorotramazole will clean this right up. So uh, the barrier thing, because most people want to dry out rashes, this is not one that you want to dry out because of the issue with the urine uh, issue, the urine contacting that. Herpangina. So this is super common, and parents get very, very frustrated when it doesn't go away. Their strep rash doesn't go away with antibiotics. All of these are variants of herpangina. They can look terrible. They can have vesicles. They can have petechiae. Um, they can have giant ulcers. Uh, steroids help if you get a lot of edematous changes in the mouth. And the other thing is magic mouthwash. I usually give them. Uh, you have to be careful with the lidocaine. If you mix lidocaine with Benadryl and Maalox and do like a pink magic that way. So I usually tailor to the child if they can swish and uh, spit. Um, the pathology or the physiology um, to help is usually like a coating. So Maalox. Uh, to coat those lesions so they're able to drink. And really that's the bottom line. You just want them to drink uh, fluids uh, to not get dehydrated. This is going to be about your two-year-old. So herp angina is a variant of hand, foot, and mouth caused by Kukzaki virus or a type of Cox virus. And it's pretty classic. You'll also see vesicles with this. Stuff in the mouth, but don't forget you'll also get stuff all over the hands, all over the feet, um, and it's very common, very transmissible. Not really much to do about it other than make sure, you know, Tylenol, Motrin if they have a fever and make sure they're drinking. Blood in the diaper. This is a pretty common one and you would think it's mostly just from breastfeeding, from maternal uh, bleeding that they ingest and then, but there's, there are other issues. Um, in infants, female infants, uh, withdrawal bleeding from mom's estrogen is a common one. So you'll see vaginal bleeding uh, in female infants. Uh, Meckel's intussusception, I think I've seen it maybe a handful of times where they actually get um, the current jelly stools. Mostly, mostly not. Um, fistulas, I have seen uh, blood and diaper with that as well. You do want to get a workup with some labs, um, basically for the coags. For that, usually that's what I get, just to make sure that there's not something else going on uh, down there. And then ultrasound, if you think they have an intussusception, uh, just general workup. There's really not much to do as far as the actual blood in the stool. Fishers is another thing when they have uh, very hard stools. Um, not much to do about that either in kids. We would not necessarily um, do any kind of stool treatments. Abdominal pain mimics. Um, there, I've been on a couple of cases where we've had um, some misses 
for abdominal pain. So abdominal pain is one of those things that kids present with um, pretty commonly. And if you don't really think about it, uh, you can miss something. Most recently, we've seen issues with COVID, kids that have presented with abdominal pain with COVID, and no respiratory symptoms, really. It's just that my stomach hurts and diarrhea. But they had, when they came back the second or the third time, pretty significant mesenteric adenitis causing inflammatory changes around the appendix and then appendicitis associated with that. So basically, the COVID caused the appendicitis. Um, but something not to miss, uh, especially if you're routinely getting the COVID swabs and you see that, don't forget even with the abdominal pain, you have to go in and examine and don't miss the appendicitis. Um, torsion is another thing. Kids won't necessarily tell you, like, hey, it hurts down there, or localize the pain really well. I always, 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 every, um, every abdominal pain chart will always mention either the testes or the ovaries, like why I do or do not think it's that. And if you don't have a backup study to, and I'm not saying you have to get that on everyone, just make sure you're thinking it through and documenting in your chart. Intussusception is another one. And then less, least common is probably kidney stones. But kids, infants do get kidney stones. Intussusception. So, interestingly, um, I had a kid, it was actually a 19-year-old who had a car accident. And it was found, and he said he was just so sleepy and didn't know what was wrong. And, of course, we did all the trauma scans. The only thing we found was an intussusception. That was fairly recently, so that was a new one for me. Um, but there are two presentations uh, of intussusception. You're either going to have the screamers and then the ones that, um, you know, go silent, and the screamers go silent. I don't see that quite as often as the ones that are just, like, Space cadets, like they're just looking around, like the parents, like there's something wrong with my kid. And um, yeah, you do everything, nothing really concerning on exam. And then it, it's just kind of spidey sense. You ultrasound and you're like, oh man, that's a giant interception in there that they got to go get reduced. So two presentations, don't forget the second one, the space cadet, the parent that's saying something is off, but I don't know what it is with my kid. Um, with a basically benign exam, you just, you know, so um, the only things to know about interception is when not to send to your friendly radiologist. So frank peritonitis, uh, fluid, or HSP. If they have concerns of that, they always need to see a pediatric surgeon. Strep vaginitis. This is another one that we get. Um, I had, I think, two or three of them calls from people downrange. Um, this causes UTI and itching for whatever pathology. Don't forget the pinworms. Uh, this is a common, common thing in kids uh, to get pinworms from the vaginal area. So we do the tape test. Sounds kind of gross, but you just do the parents to do that, and then they're like, oh, my God. Uh, and then they, you know, call back, and, you know, you give them the, the treatment for that. Sometimes you'll even see it. Like if you put the tape there on the, the back area, uh, put their diaper back on and wait a little bit and then go back and check while you're, you know, typing up their chart, you'll see them then too. Um, strep vaginitis is very, very common from, again, kids, fingers, itching, lots of bacteria in the areas. The unestrogenized tissue is very, very thin, so bacteria can get in there, and then you just treat this um, with some antibiotics. It gets better. COVID, Miss C. So this is a really interesting uh, phenomenon that we started to see probably, I would say, late 2020, or at least we noted it was something different than Kawasaki. In general, um, COVID will increase serious bacterial illnesses in infants. So there is a correlation because if, for example, there's COVID in the house, there's less likelihood that they're going to bring in those kids, those infants, uh, with runny nose, cough, cold, congestion, because they just say, it's probably just the COVID, right? So increased risk, that's very well noted in the literature from the last couple of years. Miss C is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And the diagnostic criteria is correlated with SARS-CoV-2, but it has a really high frequency of GI symptoms, and only GI symptoms. So 71% of them will have abdominal pain. 
I'm sorry, just GI symptoms in general. 34% of them will have abdominal pain. 27% of them will have uh, a lot of copious diarrhea. Cough and respiratory uh, distress, 4.5 and 9.6%. So with a respiratory virus, it's a little contradictory to say that, um, well, if they have stomach pain and COVID, um, that they don't have this. So you got to look for it. So these are a lot of bounce-back kids that come back with Miss C. So 41% will have changes on their x-ray, whether that's enlarged cardiac silhouette from a pericardial effusion, myocarditis. Um, these kids also have extremely high inflammatory markers. So your procalcitonins, your CRPs, and 63%, so more than half of these kids, will require either one or two ionotropes to maintain their blood pressure. So these are kind of sick kids. Um, 28% of those require ventilatory support of the ones who are diagnosed with MIS-C. It sort of resembles Kawasaki with all of the severe cytokine storm. And I think when when COVID first came out, we were talking about the inflammatory cascade and all the, the things that are going on physiologically associated with that. This really looks like that. This looks like a toxic shock. It looks like an extreme cytokine um, increase. It's usually your older kids. So this is going to be at least your five-year-olds and older. So not so much the younger kids. So Kawasaki is going to be more so like an average around like a one, two, two-year-old. This is going to be like a 10, seven, 10-year-old that comes in in pretty significant abdominal distress. Most of them will have myocardial involvement of some sort, whether that's a depressed EF, arrhythmias, pericardial effusions pretty significantly where they need draining, and then myocarditis. What do we treat them with? Um, Treatments are mainly supportive. We really don't know yet exactly uh, what to do about this other than the stuff that we normally do. So IVIG will be a treatment. Uh, Steroids will be a treatment to try and help with that inflammatory cascade. Um, And then cardiorespiratory support. So like I said, a good chunk of them are going to need mechanical ventilation uh, for this, for the cardio uh, portion, not so much the pulmonary uh, issue. Overall, outcomes are generally favorable. So the mortality of somebody who's diagnosed with MIS-C, a child, is only about 2%. So whether that is the, you know, cause of, you know, the inflammatory cascade resolving or, you know, some self-limiting issues or our amazing treatment, I'm not really sure, but that's pretty low for something that's this significant. We don't see that very often. So MIS-C versus Kawasaki, so the age criteria is a giveaway for that. Um, And the other thing is the predilection for Kawasaki for Asian infants versus with MIS-C, we're seeing a very large portion of African-American or black um, babies, infants, not babies, older children that have MIS-C. So, uh, and, and there's a lot of statistics that are looking at different communities, different rates, access to care also. So that, that literature is evolving with that. The cardiac issues are much, much more prominent with MIS-C than with Kawasaki. So careful uh, with that as well. And then we talked about those inflammatory markers. And the more we learn about it, as far as the procalcitonins, the CRP, uh, and we're able to use those, I think we're going to get out of diagnosis and get out treatments uh, sooner. So we're going to see um, kids getting better faster with that. So this is the last one. So bronchiolitis. So we don't have any new guidelines. So 2014 was actually the last time the guidelines were updated. But the thing that most people um, have trouble kind of wrapping their brain around is what not to do. Um, When we see a kid that comes in wheezing and just retracting and having lots of difficulty breathing, it's hard not to throw on some albuterol. It's hard not to try some racemic epi. It's hard not to give them steroids and all the stuff that we were trained to do. In general, that's not indicated with bronchiolitis. The bronchiolitis kids, you want to give them a little bit of oxygen. Um, If they have a family history 
of, you know, reactive airways, significant asthma, um, since we can't diagnose asthma, you want to try to do that um, to give them some albuterol. But in general, I don't even. I just call for high flow, call for CPAP, and just get their work of breathing uh, fixed. Once you fix that, they usually do better. So again, bronchiolitis, don't give them steroids, don't do all of the other things. Uh, hypertonic saline, we used to you know, dump that in a lot. Uh, racemic epi, that was like a thing of the day too. We were doing that. Don't do that anymore. Um, and you'll see a huge difference just with high flow. It turns them around really, really quickly. All right. How am I doing on time? I think I talked really fast. So that was 11 things that we went over. So hopefully you took out something of one of those things. Um, so the new NeoFever guidelines. So inflammatory markers was the big thing with that, right? So make sure you're incorporating that. Also the time chunks. So zero to seven days, everybody gets the treatment for fevers well appearing. Seven to 20 or eight to 22 days. 22 to 29 days, and then the, the older ones from there. So there's three different criteria, and you can look those up. I usually have them handy on my phone to go down the algorithm. Omphalitis, bad. Granulomas, not bad. Silver nitrate them. Congenital heart disease, three presentations. Then you got your left outflow tract, your right outflow tract, heart failure, and you know everything about congenital heart disease. Okay. Um, herpangina and rashes, those are very common. Don't let them fool you. Blood in the diaper, uh, also pretty common. Abdominal pain and the abdominal pain COVID stuff. Don't miss appendicitis with COVID, and especially in those Miss C kids. Um, get them treated early and make sure, if you're thinking at all Miss C, put an ultrasound on their heart and make sure you get that chest x-ray and EKG pretty quickly because they downward spiral very rapidly. Uh, strep, um, that's pretty common. And then finally, the bronchiolitis. Questions? That was a ton of stuff. <laughs> All right, thank you. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.